Good morning again, everybody. So good to see all of you. I am excited that you are here with us. Really am. And if you're new with us, thanks so much for being here. I hope you have a great Easter Sunday. And, and um, if there's any questions you have while you're here, we have an information center outside those doors in the lobby. And please drop by. You can find out more about our church or have... Uh, any of your questions answered. Uh, inside the bulletin, I wanted to point out one other announcement uh, for the men especially. On the men's flyer, I wanted to tell you about this event we're, we're also excited about on May 17th. Uh, we're just going to have a, a, a street taco night. The taco truck restaurant in town is going to cater this thing, and I'm super excited to have my friend uh, David Sammy. He's going to speak. David grew up in Iran, and uh, he's going to share with us about his spiritual journey um, from Islam to Christ. And so I would love, love, love for you to be there. And uh, we have a sign-up sheet outside, and it's, uh, it's just seven bucks. You'll get four street tacos and a uh, drink, and it's going to be a good time of fellowship for us. So I hope you come to that. You know, you guys, our world is desperately looking for heroes. In every sect of our lives, we're looking for heroes. Who will, who will do right in the face of evil, who will stand up to bad guys, and who will inspire us to do the same thing. I mean, this week, think about it, literally millions of people, literally millions, okay, get that in your head, millions, grasp onto that, millions of people are going to be in line all around this world to see their favorite superheroes beat up bad guys in the Avengers Endgame. Okay, any of you planning on seeing that? Oh yeah, you're like, no, yeah, right, you'll be the first in line. Yeah, you're not too cool for that. Um, now think about this, isn't this also why we love watching this, the, the Seahawks play? We, we don't, you don't go to a Seahawks game and then say, hey, Seahawks, take it easy on the other team. No, we want the Seahawks to crush their opponents. Because when the Seahawks win, we feel like we are winners too. That's why when they lose, we get crushed. And it's, and it's the same search for a hero that drives our media outlets to focus mainly these days on politics and, and politicians because it's, it's all about which senator, which governor, which presidential candidate is going to be the, the hero that we need. Which, which dynamic person will finally fix our country and keep us safe so that we can sleep soundly in our beds at night. And, and this search, humanity's search for a hero who will battle evil and be victorious and who will then allow us to share with him or her that victory that they've won, this is not a recent human phenomenon. If you go back about as far as we have human records, <laughs> people have always been looking for a hero. So if you just go back 3,000 years and look at one of the most ancient people groups we know of, the Jewish people, they were looking for a hero to lead them into everlasting victory and to give them peace. And according to their ancient writings, God graciously responded to them by giving them three different types of heroes. He gave them prophets, he gave them priests, and he gave them kings. And the prophets were the leaders who spoke God's words to the Jews. And the priests were the leaders who served as mediators between God and the Jews by offering sacrifices to God on behalf of all the people. 
And then the kings were the leaders who ruled over the nation. And their job was to serve and protect the nation according to the way God instructed. And many of the, the prophets and priests and kings of, of the Jews were really heroic. And they really did great things to help the Jews. However, there were also a lot of false prophets and a lot of unholy priests and a lot of evil kings who terribly hurt the Jewish people. And it did not take the Jews long to see that even their greatest prophets, even their, their best priests, even their mightiest kings were simply imperfect human beings. These leaders could not give them the victory they wanted. They could not give them the peace they were hoping for in their hearts and minds. But God began to tell them about a coming hero, another hero who would make all things right. And this hero would be born among them, and he was called the Messiah. He would be called the, the Savior, which means the Christ. And all of their previous prophets and priests and kings were merely second-rate depictions of this great hero who was to come. The coming Christ would, would not only be a prophet, he would not only be a priest, he would not only be a king, he would be all three at once, which made him totally unique and totally unprecedented. He would be the prophet, priest, and king who would most clearly tell humanity God's message, who would perfectly mediate for humanity between God and humanity, and who would give everlasting victory and peace as the king to anyone who trusts him. And you guys, this is why we are here. This is why there is such a thing as Easter, because the Christ that all the world is looking for has come to us, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the one true God who took on human flesh for our eternal good and for his eternal glory. Jesus Christ was the perfect prophet because as God, he spoke the truth to us that God wants us to know. Jesus Christ was our perfect priest because he lived a life without sin, unlike us, and he laid down his own life as the perfect sacrifice that can bring us to God. And Jesus Christ is the perfect king who has all authority, all power over all things, even life, life and death itself. The Bible says that he is the one right now holding the universe together. <laughs> Jesus said that all who trust in him can join him in his victory over sin and Satan and death and hell. That's good news. Well, this morning, we're, I, what I want to do is I don't want you just to hear from me. I want you to hear from Jesus. I want, I want us to look at Jesus' own words, and I want to look at the words that his closest friends wrote about him so that we can get a better idea how he truly is the hero that we've all been looking for. So first, Jesus spoke as a prophet. Let's talk about being a prophet for a minute. God used prophets to do two main things. They told humanity what God wanted them to know. And then they also told humanity what would happen in the future. And as the greatest prophet of God, because Jesus was God, everything he said was a clear message to us from God of who we are and who God is and what God wants from us. For instance, Jesus prophesied or spoke truth to us saying, I and the Father are one. 
Let's talk that, about what that means for a second. We believe that there is one God who exists, and his name is the Lord. And the Lord manifests himself in three persons. You've probably heard of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so here, Jesus said, I am God the Son. I am the Father. God the Father are one because we're both God. We are both the Lord. And, and that was a dangerous, blasphemous statement to make if it were not true. Because according to Jewish law, which was way harder than our laws, <laughs> if any prophet prophesied anything ever that was not true or that did not come about, you should take that guy out and kill him outside the city. And that's why the Jews and the Romans killed Jesus. Because they did not believe his prophecy that he spoke that he was God. They condemned him saying, you are a mere man, but you claim to be God. So you guys, whatever you choose to believe about Jesus Christ, you cannot call him a good prophet who is not God. This is why. Because Jesus said he was God. So it's either true or it's not. And if it's not true, then he was lying. And good prophets don't lie. They tell the truth. So Jesus was so crystal clear with us about his identity that he only gave us two options to believe. Either he truly was God and he truly was the prophet who told the truth, or he was not God and he was just another in a long line of false prophets, which the Jews were very familiar with. Recently I was, I was watching uh, political commentator Ben Shapiro, who, who is a devout Jew, uh, interview Pastor John MacArthur, who is a devout Christian. And Ben Shapiro explained why he believes Jesus was one of many good prophets. And then Pastor MacArthur gently explained to him why that view is not allowable. Let's watch a short clip. This is why it's so interesting, because when I, when I read the New Testament myself, and I obviously am not a believer in the divinity of Jesus, but when I see what Jesus actually has to say about the Old Testament, it seems to me very similar to the stuff that Zechariah is saying, or that Jeremiah is saying. Sure. Right? Jeremiah says that the, the sacrifices themselves are basically of no use unless there's actual meaning behind the sacrifices. God wasn't there because he likes the barbecue. Right? It actually has to have some meaning. And when Jesus comes along and he says, you're focusing in on all the details of the Sabbath without actually recognizing the rationale for the Sabbath, and then he exaggerates it beyond the point. It's, it's without interesting. Without loving actually, God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right, exactly. And then he even, to make a point, exaggerates it beyond the scope of what Jewish law would permit. So, for example, when he says, you're going to leave a guy to die in a ditch on the Sabbath, that's against Jewish law. You can't do that. You have to violate the Sabbath in order to save a life. This is like basic black-letter Jewish law. But he's making a point, which is, you guys are ignoring what's important in order to focus in on the mundane aspect of, of practice. Like, that is, that's not unique to Jesus, in other words. There's a, there's a long prophetic tradition of people saying exactly that, and in the modern Jewish world, it's called Musr. It's basically just telling people what they should understand about the values beyond the, beyond the black letter law. And this is why I think it's, it's fascinating to me when I talk with people who are real biblical scholars in the, from the Christian side, that all the area, no, I won't say all, a lot of the areas where Christian scholars think that Christianity has departed dramatically from Judaism I think are not really dramatic departures. They seem to be reflections of Judaism from a slightly different angle. 
even so far as a lot of the stuff in the Sermon on the Mount about you know love when when it says that you're supposed to uh, love thy brother as thyself and and you're supposed to um, and, and you're supposed to uh, treat your brother as you would wish to be treated and all, sure. all of this I mean th that's that's present in the Old Testament too no right? I, I think what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount was elevate the teaching of the rabbis elevate it he went b above them he, he said, um, well, you, you've been told you shouldn't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. He got to the heart of the law. Uh, they were content with the, the practical application of the law. He was not content with that. So I, I would say that Jesus was the purest Jew that ever lived <laughs> because he understood the, the, the elevation of the law to the heart and the soul. Um, it would be a, it would be a monstrous responsibility for some committee to have invented Jesus. Uh, the, you know, when you hear the, even the people in his time saying, "Never a man spoke like this man," the, he is a person that doesn't seem to have been a product of human invention. And you can say, well, Jesus is a good teacher, but good teachers don't claim to be God. They don't say, I and God are one. They don't say, I created the universe. Th that's not a good teacher. That's somebody who's crazy as a lunatic or somebody who's trying to pull off a huge deception. So you, you, you cannot come to Jesus and just patronize him as a noble, good Jewish teacher because he crossed a line. He crossed a severe line and the Jews saw that. Either he's the Messiah or he is a blasphemer and he needs to be put to death. And those are really the choices you have. By the way, if you haven't seen this interview, you should watch it because it is a great example, I think, of how we need to have conciliatory, peaceful conversations in our society between people with different perspectives without demonizing the other party. And in addition to the words of truth, okay, that Jesus spoke out, like the Father and I are one, Jesus also spoke forward many predictive prophecies means he told us what would happen in the future. For example, on, on several occasions, Jesus predicted with great specificity how he, how he would die, okay? Which was unusual if you think about that because the Romans had a lot of ways that they killed people, okay? And the Jews had different ways too, okay? But he also predicted that he would rise from the dead, which is what made it more... Uh, incredible. In Luke 9.22, this is one of the instances, Jesus said, the Son of Man, which is an Old Testament title for the Messiah, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, ironically, instead of not killing Jesus so that his prophet would not come true, the Jews and the Romans did reject and kill Jesus and thus fulfilled his prophecies to them. And, and even though they appointed a number of soldiers to guard his tomb, holding his dead body, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses said that Jesus rose again from the dead. So Jesus was a prophet, but he was a prophet like our world has never known. Jesus was in his own category. He did not, he did not merely um, claim to speak the truth of God. He claimed to be God. Jesus did not merely claim to speak the truth, like some prophets do. He said, listen, I am the truth. 
He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through me. So Jesus, he was very clear with us. He was the great prophet and the Christ that the Jews had been waiting for, and he is the one hero that we've been looking for. He spoke as a prophet, and then Jesus died as a perfect priest. So a priest is, is, is the middle person between God and people. The priest is a mediator. And in ancient Israel, the, the, the priests offered daily sacrifices to God on behalf of all the people to try to appease his wrath toward their sin. And the priest's job was a very bloody one. They slaughtered countless doves and sheep and goats and bulls every day and on holidays I mean, the blood would run through the streets because it was so bloody. There were so many sacrifices. But, but why is the question? Why did they do this? Why did the Jews need priests? And why do we need somebody to mediate between God and us? I mean, I thought anybody could call on God. I thought anybody could just, hey, I'm a, I'm a person. I matter. I should be able to just call on God, and he listens to me and accepts me just how I am because he made me. Well, that is how it used to be. God used to accept everybody. We used to all have easy access to him. We, we used to be welcome to come into his holy presence, but that was before we rejected him. God is not the one who rejected us. We are the ones who rejected him, and many of us still reject him. We, as a human race, rebelled against God, and we, we basically told him, you know what, we don't want to follow you. We do not want to worship you. We don't want to follow your rules. We want to be you. We want to live like gods, and we want to live, live by whatever rules we choose by. Whatever is, I want to be true, I say is true. It doesn't matter what you say, God. Well, Genesis 3 says that, so, by the way, that's not a new mindset for our society. That's as old as humankind goes. Genesis 3 says that when we did this, when we turned against God this way, God released us from friendship with him. He released us. He released us. He said, if you want sin, which is disobedience to me, pursue sin. If you, I'm going to let you have the very thing you said you want more than me. But more than just releasing us to chase after evil, God actually cursed humankind by making us prisoners to this evil that we chase. Well, we got evil all right. We got plenty of evil in our world. But now we can't get away from it. We can't get free from it. And this evil, this, this sin that we have enslaved ourselves to ultimately has eternal repercussions for us because we are not as human beings, mere particles that are here for a little while and they go back to the dust. God created us in his image so that we have fleshly bodies and dwelt by an eternal everlasting spirit. And so what that means is that our choices have eternal repercussions. This evil that we're enslaved to ultimately drags us after this life to everlasting slavery to sin and everlasting suffering for our sin. And this is what we told God we wanted. So you guys, in a very practical way, this is why it is so hard for us to be freed 
from the guilt of the terrible things we've done in our past. This is why our, our slavery to sin is why it is so hard to be freed from our many addictions that at the end of the day are just sucking the life out of us. It's why we have great difficulty moving past the wrong things that have been done to us. It's why we have such a hard time um, living, hopefully, about the future. Because the darkness that we said we wanted most at the cost of knowing God himself, it has ruined us as a people. And no matter how many good things we try to do, if we get real clever, maybe we can try to reverse this thing. If we try to just, you know, leave poverty or get rid of all sickness, those are good things, but that doesn't solve the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is that we are spiritually dead to God. <laughs> no matter how many happy thoughts we try to think us, uh, to think like, uh, like uh, Bill Murray and what about Bob, okay? Uh, I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful. You can tell yourself all that, day, it, that all day. It doesn't change reality. Our situation separated from God is, is absolutely miserable. But it is in our misery that the amazing and mind-blowing and undeserving, lavish love of God breaks into the darkness of our story. The Lord who has seen us in our miserable state, who has seen how our rebellion against him has ruined us, the Lord still somehow feels compassion for us. The Lord still loves us in all of our badness. So most of you probably have heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And what that verse means is not so as in he had this, he so much loved the world that he did this, but so means in this way. God so loved the world, not in its bigness, but in its badness. The world, and throughout the Gospel of John, is a term for the badness of humanity. He so loved the world in its badness. It's mind-blowing. The Lord loves us not because we are inherently good, but because he is inherently merciful. That's great news. <laughs> and God wants to help us. He wants to help you. God wants you to have that everlasting peace and joy that you're longing for. He wants you to have him, and this is the thing, only he can bring you back to him. And in order for that to happen, our sin, which has separated us from God and cursed us, which we've been enslaved to, this sin, something has to happen with it. It has to be dealt with. Our, our sin against God, which now has trickles into all, every aspect of our lives and the way that we hurt one another and treat one another, this sin must be punished. Why? why? Why do we have to talk about punishment? Because God is the judge and he's a good judge. If you took somebody evil to court and the judge just said, well, it doesn't really matter. Get over it. That's not a good judge. A good judge enforces judgment. He does what is right. And when the holy, perfect, loving God of the universe, when we spit in his face and said, we don't want you. There's a punishment for that. Our sin must be punished. 
And that's why the Jews sacrificed so many animals day in and day out. The, the priests would set their hands on the heads of, of these animals and transfer the, the guilt of the sin of the people onto the animals. And by then slaughtering those animals, the animals suffered the punishment of death that the people deserved for their sin. But a problem arose. No matter how many thousands of animals they slaughtered, people's hearts toward God and toward one another did not change. They still wanted evil. They saw a loop loophole. They said, oh, sweet, this is another way for me to live however I want and rebel against God. All I have to do now is go to church and a sacrifice will be made on my behalf and then I can leave and go sin. Sacrificing animals could neither take away people's sin for good, nor could it make people love God. And that only leaves a couple of options. The only way for our sin to be completely punished is either for us as the wrongdoers to suffer for it now and forever, or for a truly perfect and everlasting sacrifice to be made in our place. And that's what Jesus was for all who trust in him. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ was our great high priest. He was our mediator who did not sacrifice goats and doves for us, but he sacrificed his own life for us. And because Jesus is the one holy God himself, then that is the purest, most perfect, most everlasting sacrifice there could ever be. You guys, this is what the cross is all about. Jesus laid down his life in our place when he was nailed to a cross and crucified by the Jews and the Romans. And just like the sins um, of the people of the Jews were imputed to those animals, well, all the sins of Jesus' people, past, present, and future, were imputed to him on the cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, actually became the sin and guilt of his people so that he could put it to death in his own death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And 1 Peter 2.24 says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 says, and every priest stands daily at his service. He's talking about the Old Testament Jews uh, and, and their sacrificial system. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, let's listen to uh, part two. This is the other clip I want to see how John MacArthur uh, works this out with, with Ben Shapiro. 
But the distinction between Christianity and Judaism is what we do with Jesus Christ. Um, the writer of Hebrews says, if a sacrifice had been enough to atone for sin, they would have stopped making them. But they never stopped. Morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. You know, basically a priest was a butcher. He had blood <laughs> up to his waist. Right? I mean, That's he, true. That's he true. was a butcher. He had blood up to his waist. And the frustration of it, even on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, all the bloodletting, uh, and year after year after year after year, this goes on, this goes on, this goes on. Uh, you have this most amazing thing. You come to the death of Jesus Christ, and at the death of Christ, the veil in the temple is rent from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies is thrown open. Wow, that's a statement from God, because it couldn't have been ripped by men from the top down. The way to God is open. There's no more barriers because a, a suitable sacrifice has been found. This is the Lamb of God. And amazingly, soon after that, the whole sacrificial system ends because th that's the final sacrifice. And God validates that sacrifice by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is a provable historical fact. So I think that's the issue. Um, it's what do you do with Jesus? Did you hear that? <laughs> That's the most important question facing you right now. And it's the most important question you will ever answer in your heart. What do you do with Jesus? What are you going to believe about Jesus? Do you believe his prophetic words? Do you see your need for his suffering and death on your behalf for you not to suffer it? Or do you reject his sacrifice? And why does this matter so much? Because what you experience right now and forever depends on whether you put your trust in Jesus. Because either, either you will reject Jesus' sacrifice in your heart and you will stay an enemy of God enslaved to sin and suffering now and forever, or you will unite yourself to this Jesus and his victory through faith, and you will be freed from eternal sin and suffering. And God says he adopts you and loves you as a child of God. And nothing Jesus did really matters to, to us if he just stayed dead. If his body is in the ground just like everybody else's, then what can he do for you that, that all your deceased relatives can't do for you, right? If he did not rise from the dead, then, then all of his prophecies, they were lies. And Jesus is not somebody to be trusted or feared. However, if Jesus did rise from the dead, like the eyewitnesses say he did, then Jesus is the great hero we've been longing for in our hearts. He truly is God. He truly is worthy to be greatly feared and greatly respected and greatly worshiped and greatly loved. He spoke as a prophet, he died as a perfect priest, and he rose as our king. Okay. Listen to Luke's summary of the eyewitness reports of Jesus' resurrection. The first people to show up at Jesus' tomb on the Sunday morning after Jesus' death were his women followers. This is what Luke writes. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they'd prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they didn't believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And then Luke writes about how Jesus later appeared to the 12 disciples, who were so scared of the Romans and the Jews on that very day because of the way they treated Jesus, that that Jesus' followers locked themselves inside of a house. And Luke writes... As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them inside the locked house. They didn't open the door. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? (laughs) And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus' resurrection is not a man-made myth. The accounts that we have in the New Testament are the accounts of Jesus' disciples and close acquaintances, but Jesus did not only appear to them. This is why the Apostle Paul later wrote, who was not one of the 12 disciples, but was actually a Christian murderer, but whose life got turned around when he met the resurrected Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul said, if you don't believe me, go talk to the 500 eyewitnesses. In the 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's what he writes. I appreciated a quote I read this week about the reliability of the testimonies of of the apostles who knew Jesus, who witnessed his death and resurrection, and who wrote the New Testament of the Bible. And the quote is by Chuck Colson, who was one of the main criminals involved in the Watergate scandal in 1972. And, and when he went to prison for his crimes, he heard the good news of Jesus' salvation in prison, and he put his trust in Jesus. And when he got out of prison, he, he wrote about his testimony, and, and he said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. 
They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they could not keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved he is the king. He is the one with all power over life and death itself. And praise him, he is a good king and a loving king. He proved through his resurrection that he is the Christ that all the Jewish prophets were looking forward to. Before he put on human flesh, when he came from heaven to earth, before he added human flesh to himself and was conceived by uh, conceived inside Mary, he sent an angel to his soon-to-be mother, and the angel promised her, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. After Jesus appeared to hundreds of people in his resurrected body, he gathered his followers. He physically ascended into the sky until they lost sight of him. And he tells us in his word that he now sits on the heavenly throne at the right hand of God the Father, that he is ruling and reigning over all of the known and unknown universe, waiting for the appointed time when he will come back to earth and make all things new. He is the resurrected Lord over all. And he says that after this life, for us, if he doesn't come back first, we're going we're gonna to meet him face to face. Hebrews 9.27 says this. Listen, reincarnation does not exist. He says man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. And that moment when you see Jesus' face on his heavenly throne will either be the greatest, most exhilarating moment you've ever experienced or it will be the most horrifying. It will be the greatest moment if right now you believe and entrust yourselves to him and to his kingship over your life, but, but seeing him will be the worst moment if you reject his prophecies and his priestly work for you and his kingly authority because you will realize that you were wrong all along and at that point, it will be too late to get right with him. So what will you do with Jesus? What will you believe about this God-man who is the great prophet, the perfect priest, and the risen king? This is what I beg you to do today. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And there's two commands right there that go together. Repent. And what that means is in your heart and your mind, turn away from your old way of loving sin and turn to Jesus. And the second command is this. Believe in the gospel. Believe in this good news. Believe this good news. He says that I am God, that I came to rescue you, that I died for your sin, that I rose from the dead, that I'm alive in heaven right now and I'm coming again. The good news, you guys, for us is that he's already come. He's done the work necessary, totally sufficient. You add nothing to it.
to save you, to make you friends with God again, to be sure that God does not condemn you now or ever because he's already brought you from eternal death to eternal life. That's what he says when you trust in him happens. You don't have to wait till you die to say, man, I hope I, hope I have eternal life. Jesus says if you trust in him, you've already passed over from death to life. So trust in the Lord Jesus today and be saved from your enslavement to sin and Satan and death and hell. Because Jesus' resurrection is not just great news for him. It's great news for us. That's why we celebrate Easter Sunday, because Jesus is alive. He does love us, and he offers us eternal life with him right now, today. And this is the other part I want to add. He's also not done with us. Jesus is not satisfied with only saving us from Satan, sin, hell, and death. Like, that's good, God. If that's all you want to do, that's awesome. But Jesus wants more grace for us. And he wants to unleash his power in your life right now on earth so that you can experience more healing from your pain. And so that you can have more freedom from your addictions by his power. And so that you can have more joy in the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. He does not merely want you to convert to a religion called Christianity. Jesus said he wants us to become his disciples, his students who are becoming like him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to learn more about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, which is what Jesus said, right, in the Great Commission, he didn't say go make converts, go get people to pray a prayer. That's part of it, of coming into the kingdom, right? He said go make disciples, followers of me. Well, if you want to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to know what the master says, what Jesus says. And so I, outside those two doors on the carts and at the information table, I, I put several of these. It's a really cool little book. It's just the Gospel of John in little book form. Probably take you an hour to read it. But if you want to know what Jesus says for your life, you need to read his words and see what he says because it will cost you. It will cost you. Our world says... You need to be the true you and embrace who you really are. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, which is a very different message. It's going to cost you your sin. It's going to cost you your love for this world. It's going to cost you your addictions. And Jesus will free you from them forever. And so pick up one of these for free. Please, please, and read it for yourself. Immediately before he ascended into heaven, right? We've said this several times. This is called the Great Commission. What did he tell his followers? All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And if you believe the gospel, if you believe this good news, if you trust in Jesus, that Jesus wants you to follow him now, live a life of following him, and to be baptized. If you want to learn more about baptism, please come talk to me. But baptism is a symbol of what Jesus has done for you when you trust in him. He washed away your sin. He raises you up to new life in him. And being baptized is the beginning of a life of trusting Jesus 
and rest, resting in his finished work for you and learning how to follow him as one of his beloved children. And he adopts us into a family. I love the, the idea of adoption because it is one of the most gospel-centered concepts of what Jesus has done for us. He adopts believers into his family and the family is called the church. And as his church, we're a bunch of imperfect people who are learning together how to follow Jesus and who want to bring him honor and glory in our lives. We're not perfect. And we want to do what he told us to do, though. We want to glorify him in our lives, and we want to make more disciples of Jesus together so that other people can have eternal life and joy in Jesus, too, and so that Jesus' name is greatly worshiped and glorified because he deserves it. So if you live in Stanwood, if you're not part of a church that regularly meets on Sundays or during the week, please be part of our church family here. Our church statement says, that our purpose statement says, Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship and community and service and multiplication. We want you to be part of our family. And if you don't live around here, I, I just pray that you would get plugged into a solid Bible-preaching church wherever you live. Now let me close by reading a really great passage of Scripture that beautifully describes Jesus as our perfect prophet and priest and king. This is how the book of Hebrews in the New Testament begins, one, one through four. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, and the name is the Lord. He's the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, God, for being with us in a special way. Thank you for inviting us into your victory with you so that we have something to celebrate on Easter Sunday, God. This is about you and about what you've done. This is not about us and who we are trying to be for you, God. This is, this is all about you as the perfect, true prophet, as the perfect mediator, priest, and as the victorious and loving good king of us and of all the universe. I just pray, God, that um, in our pursuit of joy in our lives, we would not settle for lesser temporary joys that are gonna come and go but leave us empty for eternity. I pray, Lord, that we would pursue our greatest joy by knowing you through Jesus Christ and by knowing the one who loves us most. We pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.